To download more lectures, learn more about our project, and to help support it, visit www.bayina.com dream. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H slash dream. You are free to share these recordings with family and friends. Thank you and Jazakumullah Khairan for helping us make our dream a reality. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Lam yakunil ladhina kafaru min ahlil kitabi wal mushrikina munfakkina hatta ta'tiyahumul bayyinah Rasulun minallahi yatlu suhufan mutahharah Fiha kutubun وما تفرق الذين أوتوا الكتاب إلا من بعد ما جاءتهم البينة وما أمروا إلا ليعبدوا الله مخلصين له الدين حنفاء ويقيموا الصلاة ويؤتوا الزكاة وذلك دين القيمة إن الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب والمشركين في نار جهنم في نار جهنم خالدين فيها أولئك هم شر البرية إن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات أولئك هم خير البرية جزاؤهم عند ربهم جنات عدل تجري من تحتها الأنهار من تحتها الأنهار خالدين فيها أبدا رضي الله عنهم ورضوا عنه ذلك لمن خشي ربه اللهم اجعلنا منهم رَبِّ اشْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَاحْلُلْ عُقْدَةً مِّن لِّسَانِي يَفْقَهُوا قَوْلِي وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى أَشْرَفِ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَالْمُرْسَلِينَ وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ وَمَنْ اسْتَنَّى بِسُنَّتِهِ إِلَى يَوْمِ الدِّينِ ثُمَّ أَمَّا بَعْدُ السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ We are after a couple of weeks of break uh, engaged in a study of Surah Al-Bayyinah the two previous surahs Surah Al-Alaq dealt with the subject matter of how revelation began the very first ayat Iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq how revelation began Surah Al-Qadr right after that dealt with the subject matter of when it began Inna anzalnahu fi laylatil qadr This is the third surah in that series and now we're going to study what is the essence of revelation what is revelation itself what impact does it have? Yes, it came down in Laylatul Qadr, but what impact did it have once it came down? What is its essence? What's its central message? What is it in and of itself? And what power, what, what reaction happens once the revelation comes? The first three or four ayat of this surah are considered some of the most difficult surahs, uh, ayat in tafsir, uh, according to many, many mufassirun. And we'll actually read some commentary of the mufassirun about the complexity of the first part of the surah. I pray that I'm able to clarify some of these issues and walk you through them and myself inshallah ta'ala. You know, it's good we had two weeks off because I was perplexed for two weeks just studying the first ayah. <laughs> so it takes a long time to grasp some of the concepts that are here. They're very deep and the questions that arise from them are also very deep. 
Uh, but once we do understand them, or at least understand some of the central issues in them, the benefits are profound. The benefits are really, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're very, they're, they're full of wisdom and insight. Just these few words of Allah Azza wa And that's the nature of Qur'an. You know, the ayat can be very, very simple, very easy to understand. Anybody can get benefit from them. And at the same time, this book has ayat that can, you know, perplex mufassirun for generations. And there could be debate about a, uh, just a word or just an ayah. So it's very simple at the same time and it's very complex at the same time. And that's the miraculous nature of this book. So first I'll walk you through a rough translation of the first ayah. And then inshallah ta'ala we'll get into some issues in tafsir. لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ the people, the, the people who disbelieved belonging to one of two groups. Min ahlil kitab, from the people of the book. Those who disbelieved from the people of the book. Wal mushrikeen, and from those who did shirk. They would not have or they would never become separated. Munfakina. Munfakina is really the word in this ayah that makes it difficult. That's the, the word that, the, that gives it complexity. And that's the word that comes under lots and lots and lots of discussion. There are essentially two ways of understanding that one word. One is those who disbelieve from the people of the book and the people who associated with Allah, the people who do shirk, would not have associated, uh, separated themselves. Munfakin to separate, to cut oneself off. That's one meaning. The other meaning is to discontinue doing something. You know how you say to somebody, cut it out, stop doing it? They wouldn't have stopped doing something until hatta ta'tiyahumul bayina, until the clearest proof came to them. I'm using a simplistic translation of al-bayyina, saying the clearest proof. We'll get into a linguistic analysis of that in a little bit. So the two possible meanings of al-munfakina is the people who cut themselves off, the people who separate themselves, and the other meaning is those, the people who stop doing something that they were continuously doing. You're constantly doing something and you stop doing it and you never do it again, you quit it. They weren't about to quit it until al-bayyina came. But the question is, Allah didn't mention what they quit. What is it that they stopped doing until the revelation came? And that's the question that Mufassirun have grappled with. Until this revelation came, those who disbelieved from the people of the book and the people who committed shirk, what is it that they were not going to quit until this revelation came? What were they going to separate themselves from until they, this revelation came? So this is the question, the first major question we're going to uh, grapple with inshallah ta'ala. Just the, a little bit of the, the meanings of infakkah. Uh, according to Mutaradifat al-Qur'an by Abdul Rahman al-Kilani, he says, it is similar in meaning from intaha, to stop doing something. So that's similar to the meaning I told you before. Then, fakkal asir, this is used, the same root, fa, kaf, and kaf, is used for separate, freeing a slave. You know, a slave is caught in a relationship with their master, or in prison even, a, a prisoner, and they're set free, they're, they're, they're separated, they're cut off. Right? So that's another meaning of infikak. Then infak al-azm is used. That's a very interesting word. To be painfully separated. Meaning you know when a, uh, every bone is in its joint. But because of weakness or because of an impact, when it gets moved from its place, it's not an easy removal, it's a painful removal, but it's separated from where it used to be. Right? A dislocated shoulder for example, would be infak al-azm in Arabic. Okay? So they, it's painfully separated from what it used to be. These are the linguistic meanings. Munfasil, munqati' Other similar words in Arabic, munqasim, to be separated from, to be cut away from, to be divided up, to be chopped up. These are the implications of the word. In regards to this surah, there's a strong difference of opinion of the mufassirun, whether this is madani or makki. 
One group of uh, one group of Muslims will actually comment in their commentary that the majority says it's Makki. Another group says the majority says it's Madani. So it leaves the reader really confused. If the majority says it's Makki, then how can the majority say it's Madani? But some Fasirun, they comment on either side. So we're kind of left in the middle. When we turn to the opinions of the Sahaba, we also find similar confusion. We find, for example, two conflicting narrations coming from the same Sahabi, Ibn Abbas anhuma. He in one narration says it's Makki, in another he says it's Madani. But interestingly, the one when he says it's Makki is the one that's mostly taken. That's the one that's mostly accepted. So the other one, perhaps there's some weakness in the narration. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha is very very strong in her opinion that it is Makki. And really that's, that's in the end my personal slant is on that because the athar from the sahaba seem to indicate that the surah itself is Makki. The reason some scholars say it's Madani is because it's, ta- it's talking about the people of the book. And you all know that the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam came into real interaction with the people of the book, not in the Makki seerah but in the Madani life, right? In the Madani time of the Prophet's life, sallallahu alayhi wa So it's because of that a lot of scholars opine that this is in fact a Madani surah. But from the language we can also conclude not necessarily that it's Madani, but even from the language it could also be late Makki. In the later Makkan period, there was also a lot of interaction with the people of the book. Surah, surahs like Surah Al-Isra, Surah Al-Kahf that deal with the people of the book are Makki surahs, right? And they come up later on in the Makki surah before the, before the migration also. Then in regards to that, that comment I wanted to share with you about how difficult the first ayat are, قَالَ الْوَاحِدِي فِي كِتَابِ الْبَسِيطِ This is, I'm quoting from Imam Al-Lusi, and many other Mufassirun commented or reiterated this quote from Shaykh Al-Wahidi, هَذِهِ الْآيَةَ مِنْ أَصْعَبِ مَا فِي الْقُرْآنِ الْعَظِيمِ نَظْمًا وَتَفْسِيرًا This ayah is the most difficult of what is found in the Noble Qur'an or the Great Qur'an in terms of its sequence and structure and also in terms of its interpretation. وَقَدْ تَخَبَّطَ فِيهَا الْكِبَارُ مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ And it has caused a lot of great confusion to a lot of greats, heavy hitters, heavy scholars uh, or, or, or greats among the scholars. So what is this complication? that we're talking about. What makes it so complicated? It doesn't seem like it's all that complicated when I translated it to you. The people who disbelieved, that belonged to either the people of the book, or the people who did shirk, the idolaters in Mecca, they were not to separate themselves until Al-Bayyina came. They were not to cut themselves off until Al-Bayyina came, right? Or they weren't going to stop doing what they were doing, whatever that is we're going to mention in a second, until Al-Bayyina came. So what is it that's so complicated about it? Let's look at it. First thing, most Mufassirun comment that they weren't going to stop their shirk until the revelation came. Munfakina an kufrihim an shirkihim an dalalatihim. That they were not going to discontinue their practices of association with Allah, of disbelief, of ignorance, of misguidance until the revelation came and corrected them. But then the problem that occurs is the word hatta. The word hatta in Arabic is used much like English, but a little stronger than it is used in English. For something that was not the case until a certain point, and then it was the case. For example, if I say to you in simple language, if I say to you, I didn't eat until five o'clock. Until, hatta, okay? I didn't eat until, until being the Arabic word hatta. I didn't eat until five o'clock. You know what that means? I did eat after five o'clock. So if the ayah is saying they didn't disbelieve until revelation came, they didn't stop their practices, they didn't abandon their shirk and their kufr until revelation came, it would necessarily imply that after revelation came, what? They abandoned those practices. They didn't practice those things anymore. They left them. But when we study the seerah, the revelation did come, but did they stop? Many of them stopped, but many of them didn't. 
So then how do we understand this ayah when Allah said they stopped? Allah says they stopped. And when you look at history, we say that they didn't stop. They didn't stop. So that's the first major problem that Mufassirun have grappled with in this ayah. That's the one we're going to deal with first, inshallah ta'ala. First and foremost, we're going to look at uh, a comment made by Az-Zamakhshari, who, again, I always mention his, his belief system is a little different from the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, he's a Mu'tazili scholar, but his linguistic analysis is still taken by Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah and is almost a gold standard in the grammatical and syntaxical and, and linguistic analysis of the Qur'an. His take on it is something very, very powerful. And it's something very different from a lot of other mufassirun when understanding the complexity of this ayah. Let, let's hear what he has to say. He says that Allah Azza wa Jalla in the first ayah is hikayatan an mawqifihim. Meaning that he, Allah is actually elaborating the stance of those who disbelieve. Allah is not speaking from his point of view, he is elaborating the point of view of the kuffar in the first ayah. Now how do we understand that? What he's saying is, these disbelievers, are they saying that until a very clear proof comes to them, they will never leave what they're doing? Is that what they're saying? It's almost as though the first ayah is put in the form of a question. لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ وَالْفَكِينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Until this bayina comes, they're not gonna abandon their shirk, not gonna abandon their practices. Is that the case? And he cites as evidence, other places in the Qur'an where this challenge is made by the people of the book, and also by al-mushrikun. Let's look at those challenges. In Surah Ali Imran, the people of the book, they came to the messenger and said, الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَهِدَ إِلَيْنَا أَلَّا نُؤْمِنَ لِرَسُولٍ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَنَا بِقُرْبَانٍ تَأْكُلُهُ النَّارِ We are not going to believe in a messenger until he, Allah took a promise from us. We should never believe in a messenger until he brings to us a sacrificial animal, he sacrifices an animal, and then a fire comes and takes that animal away. From the sky, a fire comes and eats up that animal. That will be a sign that Allah accepted that sacrifice. Okay? If, until that happens, we're not gonna accept as a messenger, that will be our proof. So when Allah says in the beginning, they were not going to leave their kufr until they saw a proof, Zamakhshari says perhaps they were demanding a proof like the one they demanded in Surah Al-Imran. But Allah didn't just mention this demand from the people of the book. The ayah says, مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ The mushrikeen also. When you look at Surah Al-Isra, you find, وَقَالُوا لَن نُؤْمِنَ لَكَ حَتَّى تَفْجُرَ لَنَا مِنَ الْأَرْضِ يَنْبُوعَ We're not gonna accept what you're saying until a spring comes out of the sand. A, a water, you know, a water spring just gushes out of the, the sand in the middle of the desert. If that happens, you're definitely a messenger. Then they added, أَوْ تَكُونَ لَكَ جَنَّةٌ مِّن نَخِيلٍ وَعِنَبٍ You keep offering us Jannah in the next life. How about this? If you can produce a garden in the middle of the desert, made of palm trees and all these things, then yeah, I guess you are a messenger. That's what the mushrikun challenged with to the messenger tafjira. Then how come you just don't make rivers upon rivers flow in the midst of this desert? It's pretty hard life. It'll become easier for us. And it'll become easy for us to accept that you're a messenger also. And then you keep talking about how, you know, Allah will defend, descend from the sky and this revelation comes from the sky and the sky is gonna crack open. How about this? How come you just, how about this, you just chop, cut off a piece of the sky and bring it down? How about that? So these are the kinds of demands the mushrikun had made, and this in their thought was bayina. This to them, bayina means a proof that you cannot argue with. A, a proof that is so clear that there's no room for argument left. 
So Zamakhshari's opinion is that the first ayah is not actually Allah giving a statement of fact, but Allah Azza wa Jal narrating the point of view of the kuffar. That's what he. That's the way he's looking at the first ayah. Then the second ayah, Rasulun min Allahi yatlu mutahara, is Allah's response. You're not going to believe until this clear proof, which you cannot argue with. Until that comes, you're not going to leave your ways. But if that, that way has come. What is that clear proof? Rasulun min Allah, a magnificent messenger sent from Allah. Yatlu suhufan mutahara that recites purified scriptures. Fiha kutubun qayyimah in which there are established books, established laws. Kutub can be understood as surahs here, also as laws in this ayah. And we'll get into those ayat a little bit later. But first, the opinion of Zamakhshari overall. What he's saying, what, what, what point is he trying to get across? Others didn't accept this opinion. Others had a different take on these ayat. Now let's understand what that other take is. Basically, the word min is also a key here. The word min in gramma- grammatical studies can be called min tab'idiyya with ba'd, like ba'd. And also min bayaniya. And this makes a huge difference. Those who disbelieved from the people of the book. Now that from could mean that those who disbelieved, not all the people of the book disbelieved, only a small portion of them disbelieved, the rest of them believed. So by min we're learning that not all the dis- people of the book were disbelievers. That's one way of looking at it. This is called tab'idiyya. That's only talking about a fraction. But the, the other is min could be an elaboration. Those who disbelieve that belong to the people of the book. In other words, all the people of the book disbelieved. Though some scholars took this opinion and others that opinion, in the end, Alusi and others who did elaborate research on the subject, in the end concluded it's tab'idiyya. In other words, we can't say about all the people of the book that they all disbelieved. This is talking about a small group from among them. So the ayah as a whole isn't also talking about everyone. It's talking about a huge group of people in the world that were so committed to their tradition, but something, something has to be very, very powerful to take these people who were in their kufr and to take them away from that kufr. Right? You know, so the way Muhammad al-Ghazali explains this opinion in his tafsir and, and also what's been translated into English, uh, you should get your hands on it. It's very nice writing. It's called Thematic Study of the Qur'an. And he explains the following. He says that, look, you have people that were in their tradition of shirk, and you know, idol worship and the misguidances of the people of the book for generations, centuries if not millennia. They've been doing the same thing for a very, very, very long time. So it's easily understandable that they're set in their ways, right? They're very, very set in their ways. When people are really set in their ways, something very powerful has to take them away from that. You can't just take it away. Remember the, the word in Fakka I told you like a bone in its place? And it's a very painful thing to move it from its place? It's people are set in their ways like that. So Allah Azza wa says they would never have left their shirk and their kufr and their, their deviation, those who disbelieved in these two groups, they would never have left until something really powerful. What is that really powerful thing? Al-bayyina. Until that came, they would not have left that tradition. And subhanAllah, if you, if you study the seerah of the Messenger wasallam, and even early Islam, we see this ayah come true. In the seerah of the Messenger wasallam, there are people who have been mushrikun for generations. And then they left it. They left it, they immediately left it. And they left it for good. It's not even like they were going through a phase. They left it for good. And on the other hand, as soon as Islam spreads to the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, these are also nations that have held on to their false religion for many generations. But all of us, you know, the, the impact of this bayyana, this proof was so powerful, that it was enough for them to be separated from their own legacy, from their own tradition, from their own nation. They were separated. And separated in a way that could never be reconciled again. 
There was this conclusive separation that happened, and it could never have happened until something so powerful that can cause such a separation can, can, can do that. So the previous surah says, إِنَّا أَنزَلَاهُ فِي لَيْلَةِ الْقَدْرِ And one of the meanings of qadr is power. The night of power in which this Qur'an was revealed, and in this surah, the power of this Qur'an, that it separated entire nations. Nations that were one way, people that were one way, it made them separate from those ways. And this, happened, this became a global phenomenon. And you know, as Islam spread, this ayah becomes more and more and more true. So you, for example, when Islam spreads to the, the subcontinent in India, right? And it spreads in that region. There are people who have been Hindus for thousands of years. And then this deen comes and they're separated, and they're separated in the way that they will never go back. They will never go back to those other ways. They completely got separated from those ways of kufr. So this is the second way in which this has been interpreted. But then there are some other minority opinions, and we'll go through them also inshaAllah ta'ala. Uh, some actually an elaboration of what we just already studied. فَصَارَ التَّقْدِيرِ لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مُنْفَكِينَ عَنْ كُفْرِهِمْ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Shinqiti says, yes, the, the meaning would be, they would never have walked away from their kufr until bayina came. They would never have abandoned and separated themselves from their kufr until bayina came. So that from their kufr is the part that's not mentioned in the ayah but's understood. Similarly, Sabuni says, he says in, in Safwatul Tafasir, he says, Ay munfasilina wa muntahina amma hum alayhi min al kufr, hatta ta'tiya humul hujja tul wahida. Awadiha rather. He explains al bayina as al hujja al wadiha. He says they would never have distanced themselves from their tradition, their legacy, their kufr, until something absolutely clear, a proof that was absolutely clear that, could, that could not, they could not contest with, came. But then Ibn Kisan has a very interesting, unique tafsir of this ayah. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. A very unique take, take on this ayah. You know how Allah says they would not have left, but He doesn't say what they would not have left? That part, what they would not have left, He attributes it to the people of the book and says they were very committed to their book. And they claimed it to be true. And they used to, when they used to fight with the mushrikun, they used to say to them, we have a messenger promised in our books. And when he comes, you'll find out, because Allah has promised him victory. Okay? So the mush- this is mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah, by the way. That they would fight against the mushrikun, and they would lose. People of the book would lose against fighting against the mushrikun, are much tougher fighters. So they would lose. When they would lose, they would say, we have a prophecy in our books, that a final messenger is coming. And when he comes, victory is guaranteed. Right? وَكَانُوا يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Those are the words in Baqarah. They used to impose that they will have victory against the disbelievers because the promised messenger is coming. فَلَمَّا جَاءَهُمْ مَعَرَفُوا Then what they already recognized, the, one, the thing they used to boast about was what? This messenger. When he came, كَفَرُوا بِهِ They disbelieved in him. So he's saying they were, very, they were holding on to even their own book. And they would not have let him go until, ironically, until after the clearest proof came to them. This was the time to hold on to their book. This was the time that they abandoned even their own book. This is the opinion of Ibn Kisan. Very interesting take on the ayah. Then finally, inshallah ta'ala, now we get to the heart of the matter. It's very heavy stuff. You know the word, الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Those who disbelieved. لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Alladhina kafaru is not used just for anybody. It's used for someone who rejects the truth. Kafara in the Arabic language means to deny. It means to reject. So what did they reject? Allah is calling them alladhina kafaru even before the revelation came. Usually alladhina kafaru, those who disbelieved, is used after the revelation comes. The revelation comes, then you accept it or then you reject it. If you accept it, alladhina amanu. If you reject it, alladhina kafaru. But interestingly, in the ayah, the terminology of الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا is used even before 
That, that happens later until the clearest proof came to them. But even before that, they are called الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا So we have to understand that in a little bit more depth. What kufr is this? That happens even before they were in, they were exposed to the revelation. You see the word kafara in Arabic also means to bury a seed deep into the ground. It also means to bury a seed deep into, to put it in the dark. To put it in the dark. Every society, until the revelation comes and gives them light, they are in the dark. They are in the dark, fi ظُلُمَاتِ kufr, In the darknesses of kufr. You know how Allah says, يُخْرِجُهُمْ مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى nur. He brings them out of darknesses into light. What darkness is that? It's the darkness of kufr. It's the darkness of denial, of not knowing the truth. Okay? Now, what I want to share with you in light of this, is an interesting reality about you know, all societies. In every no society is all bad and no society is all good, right? Even the worst society has some good things in it. You could say this: the, the period before the messenger's arrival, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the the time of the the uh, mushrikun, they had a lot of bad habits, but they had some good ones too. There were some good in them also, and even in, among criminals like Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl. Horrible people like that. On the other hand, at the same time, you had people like Abu Bakr Siddiq living in the same society. Warqai bin Nawfal, who didn't take much time in recognizing that Muhammad is a messenger in fact. Right? These people were there too. So there's good and bad mixed in every society. The first thing I'd like to do to help you understand the concept of this surah, is to help you by means of dividing people up into categories. We're gonna make four categories of people. There are four kinds of people in a society, when it comes to kufr and iman, we're talking about a society in which revelation hasn't come yet. No messenger has come yet. They're just on their own. But there are four kinds of people. There are people that have goodness on the inside, and it also shows on the outside. They're decent inside, they're kind, loving, humble, honest people on the inside, and their honesty also shows on the outside. That's one kind of people. Even before Islam, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu is a great person on the inside and the outside. Another example like I just mentioned is Warqai bin Nawfal, even before Islam. Another example, another kind of people, are people that may have good on the inside, but it's covered with a lot of layers, they got a lot of baggage. Because of the society of ignorance in which they live, some of that rubs off on them. So when you look at them on the outside, you don't see a good person. Or you wouldn't think there's any good on the inside, but actually there is. An example of that, or a couple of examples of that would have to be people like Hamza radiallahu anhu, or Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. This is good inside. But if you see them before Islam, you wouldn't think there's anything inside. You wouldn't think this is a nice person. But there's still some good on the inside. So there are two kinds of good, you know, people that have carrying good on the inside. People whose good you can clearly see, and people whose good you cannot see. That's two categories now. Here's the third category. The third category are people that everybody likes them. People think they're great. But actually inside them is arrogance and greed and... They have, they're very corrupt on the inside. But on the outside, they show the world that they're very, very good. And an example of that in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ is Abu Jahl. People loved this guy. They called him Abu Al-Hakam. They used to take his advice. They thought he was a wise leader. He was just. He was fair. They give, and he was very brave. He was brave in battle. He was known for his chivalry. So they thought everything was good on the outside, but we know what was on the inside. Right? It was corruption on the inside. So now we have three categories of people. I'm making it simple. Good inside and outside both. That's one. Good on the inside, but not so good on the outside, that's two. Then there's good on the outside, but not a lot of good on the inside, that's three. And then there's the worst of the worst. There's no good inside, and there's no good outside. 
And the easy example of that in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ is Abu Lahab. He's filthy and corrupt on the inside and filthy and corrupt on the outside, right? So you've got these four categories of people. And they're all living together. They're all in the same society, right? These different categories of people, I'm simplifying here, they're all living together, they're not separated from each other. They're all together. When bayina comes, al bayina, when the revelation comes, when this messenger comes, this messenger is forceful enough, and this message is forceful enough to now separate between these people. And it makes it very, very, very clear who is actually good and who is actually bad. So people like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu and Umar ibn al-Khattab are on one side. Why? Because they had goodness where? On the inside. And people, even if they looked like they were very good, they looked like they were very good like Abu Jahl, or may have a lot of power like Abu Lahab, they became separated and cut off and they were on the other side. Because Allah exposes that there was no good where? On the inside. This is something nobody could have known. Nobody could know what's going on inside. The only thing that comes and clarifies that in, a, in that society is the revelation that was given to Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So munfakina, the fact that they were they, they weren't separated. See, infakka in Arabic comes from infial, which means a verb that is intransitive. The action happens to itself. So within themselves they became separated. Within and of themselves they got cut off. That society got compartmentalized. Who caused? What caused that compartmentalization? It's this revelation. It separated people into camps. Now to understand this powerful concept even more, Allah says in Surah Al-Anfal, He says, لِيُحِقَّ الْحَقَّ وَيُبْتِلَ الْبَاطِلِ So truth can come forward as truth. And falsehood can come forward as falsehood. It should become clear. So it should become absolutely clear that as bad as Umar looks on the outside, there is good inside him, let it come out. Let it become clear that he's actually good. And as impressive as Abu Jahl may be, let it become clear that there's no good on the inside. It may become clear. So Allah says in another explanation of this same concept, لِيَهْلِكَ مَنْ هَلَكَ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ Same word. وَيَحْيَا مَنْ حَيَّ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَسَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ SubhanAllah. So the one who gets destroyed should get destroyed on account of, on the basis of the clear proof. He truly deserved to be destroyed. And the one who gets to live and enjoy blissful life gets to live it based on the clear proof, al-bayyina. And, and so this, this revelation came and it distinguished and clarified people. The other importance of separate, what's the importance of separating people? Why can't they just live right along, alongside each other? First of all, every other religion, many religions have coexisted. The biggest example of that is the Arabs. So many different gods, right? In the same haram. And everybody's got their own god. Or they, all, they don't all worship the same god. They all got their own idols. But they're all hanging out with each other. Everything's all good. It's a pluralistic society in which what you could call there's freedom of religion. You worship whatever you want. I worship whatever I want. It's all good. Right? That's, that was the idea. And we're not gonna say that your religion is wrong and mine is right. You do whatever you want. I do whatever I want. And I wouldn't even say anything about your religion. That was the idea. Very much like our society today. But Allah didn't just send a heritage or a family tradition or a culture. Allah sent the truth. Al-bayyana is the truth. And when you have convincing evidence, when your side has evidence that shows that the other side does not have evidence, it starts becoming offensive to all the other religions. Because Allah doesn't just say, you can become Muslim and everybody else, don't say anything about them. Allah starts attacking shirk. Allah starts attacking people of the book for hiding the truth. Allah starts going after them. Because the truth doesn't get scared, it's offended by falsehood. It comes after it. The Qur'an is very uncompromising, very unforgiving. 
Right? It's very even offensive to the people who were, who were holding on to shirk. The Qur'an is extremely offensive to shirk. It's very offensive to shirk. It goes after them. Even calls them stupid. Malakum, كَيْفَ تَحْكُمُونَ How do you make your decisions? أَفَلَا تَحْكُمُونَ Why don't you think? What kind of, why, don't, why can't you even think? You know how, humiliation shirk, how, how humiliating shirk is? So this bayyina came and it separated people. And it separated because whoever accepts this truth cannot live alongside, just quietly live alongside falsehood. They just can't do that anymore. They may have been able to do that before. I'm a good person, he's not such a good person, but it's all good. I won't even say anything. But once this revelation comes, they have to open their mouth and separate themselves. Just like the Messenger himself had to separate himself. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ لَا أَعْبُدُ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ He had to separate himself. Allah commanded him to. So now, if you go further, you find what the benefit of this separation is. Allah's destruction will fall upon those who don't accept this truth. And Allah's help will be in the favor of those who accept this truth. But Allah does not, Allah does not punish until the, those who hold on to the truth are separated. He destroys the one who are on falsehood. But if they're all mixed together, then you can't destroy them. So you find this in the Qur'an, Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا We were never once to destroy until we sent a messenger. Because when a messenger comes, people get separated. Similarly, even to the messenger, he says, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ Allah would never be destroying them. Allah would never be one to destroy them while you are among them. As you are among, because you're the one to separate them. Once you're gone, now the filthy are truly exposed and they deserve to be destroyed. One final ayah just to make this concept clearer. Again, it belongs to Surah Al-Anfal. Allah says, لِيَمِيزَ اللَّهُ الْخَبِيثَ مِنَ الطَّيِّبِ وَيَجْعَلَ الْخَبِيثَ بَعْضَهُ عَلَى بَعْضٍ فَيَرْكُمَهُ جَمِيعًا فَيَجْعَلَهُ فِي جَهَنَّمَا أُولَائِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ So Allah may distinguish the, the filthy from the good, like the filthy people from the good people even, right? And then He may pile all the evil up in one place. They may have different evils, but Allah piles them separately. Like the Messenger says, الْكُفْرُ مِلَّةٌ وَاحِدًا Disbelief is one nation. They can have different faces. It could be communist, Zionist, this, that, the other. They could have all these different faces. But in the end, kufr is one thing. It's just one falsehood. So Allah says, يَرْكُمَهُ He piles it up. He makes a whole pile of just kufr on one side. It's like, you know, when you're cleaning and you pile all the filth on one side, you broom it to one side. That's the verb that's used here. Right? So this is مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ They were completely cut off, separated. Within, the, of, within their own ranks. They weren't just Quraysh anymore. They were alladhina amanu and alladhina kafaru. They weren't just the Arabs anymore. They were, the tribal lines disappeared. Family lines disappeared. The only line that was there now is La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. Either you're on this side of it or on that side of it. That's, that's what Bayyina did. That's the Furqan. That's the, the criterion, the separator that came. Interestingly, the word Bayyina comes from Bana Yabinu. Which actually means to put distance between two things, literally. And bayina, it came clearly to separate two groups clearly from each other. Clearly separate them from each other. Then, interestingly, the word, you know, something about the Arabic language, the root letters of Arabic, the letters have features. So when a, a word in Arabic begins with the letter fa, it usually has the meaning of separation and cutting up. Fath, to open it up. Fajj, falak, right? So similarly, you have words like uh, fajr, right? These, these open pathway, fajjun amiq, fajj, open pathway, it's cut, it cuts two sides of the, the valley apart. Right? So the letter in and of itself implies this separation and this cutting up from within. Now, we get to the next, the second ayah. 
You know Allah says al-bayyana the clear proof. What's the what's the explanation of what that clear proof is? Rasulun min Allah yatlu suhufan mutahhara we're going to read Imam al-Alusi rahimahullah wal-bayyinatu ala ma qalahu al-jamhur huwa Muhammadun sallallahu alayhi wa sallam li'annahu fi nafsihi bayyinatun wa hujjah wa lidhalika sammahu sirajan munira wa qad fassara Allah subhanahu hadhihi al-bayyina al-jumla biqawlihi ma'a al-jumla biqawlihi rasulun min Allah fa so so this ayah itself is proof Allah says until the clearest evidence didn't come they would not be ones to separate themselves. And what is that clear, clearest evidence? The Messenger himself. But the ayah says two things. Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufan. A Messenger from Allah. A, and by the way, Rasulun has tanween. This is for Mufidul Azma. Instead of saying Rasulullah, we normally say Rasulullah, right? This ayah says Rasulun min Allah. It separates and puts a tanween on Rasul. This is Mufidul Azma. Okay? A magnificent Messenger from Allah. You would have to translate. A pro, an awesome messenger from Allah Yatlu That reads on to people Suhufan mutahhara Purified scriptures This is a, So this Two part thing The messenger and the message When these two come together Then you have bayina. Then you have al-bayina This is a very important concept in Islam Islam is not just theory You know you can have a theory A philosophical theory An idea And you say this is the truth and we say in Islam, that's not enough. To have an idea is not enough. If the idea is actually truth and there's good in it, then it should be something you can implement. But in and of itself, a theory, a concept isn't good enough. Unless you see it in action. And this is the biggest obstacle to the da'wah of Islam in our time. You can show people the proofs of Islam. You can show people the wisdom of Islam. But when you look at the practice of the Muslims, it undoes all your da'wah. It, it's un- undermining all the da'wah of the Muslims, their, beha- their behavior. Oh, if the book is saying all of this, and if your religion is so good, how come your own people don't follow it? How come your own people don't live by it? How come you people aren't as honest in business as you, your book says you should be? How come you don't treat your women the way your book and the sunnah of your messenger says you should treat them? Right? But in the end, the point of the heart, the heart of the matter is, a clear proof, a clear message is one that in theory sounds convincing and in practice it can be observed. Now that's absolute proof. So Allah Azza wa says the absolute proof isn't just Qur'an. It's Rasulun min Allahi yatlu. It's a, a magnificent messenger from Allah who's reading onto you or who's reciting suhufa mutahara, purified scrolls and scriptures. That's what he's doing. So this is the first thing, combining the messenger and the message into one. And this again, this is the ultimate hurdle to the da'wah of Islam in our time. We invite people in theory. We give them a pamphlet, we give them a book, we tell them listen to a speech, watch this video. All of that is what? All of that's theory. All of that's theory. That is empty unless you have what? Practice. Until they see the behavior of the Muslims. Until they see the honesty of the Muslims. Until they see how the Muslim treats their neighbor. Until they see how the Muslim deals in business. Until they see that, then this is just one side of the picture. That's not enough. That's not real da'wah. So Allah Azza wa makes it clear that you cannot separate the messenger from the message. The carrier of the message should reflect the teachings of that message. Being a good orator, a speaker, a writer, that's not enough. That's just one side of the coin. The other side, our speech must match our action. لِمَا تَقُولُونَ مَا لَا تَفْعَلُونَ Why do you say what you don't do? وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ قَوْلًا مِمَّنْ دَعَا إِلَى اللَّهِ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا who could be better in speech who calls to Allah and acts righteously? Allah combines the two as He does in this amazing ayah. 
And of course, Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa his character is exalted in another place in Surah Al-Qalam. Allah says, وَإِنَّكَ لَا عَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ His character itself is, you are committed to an incredibly ethical character. That's an, that's an exaltation Allah gives to His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa The next riddle in this ayah that's really beautiful and powerful is the words, يَتْلُوا صُحُفًا مُطَهَّرًا He reads. He reads tilawa, is to read. To, to narrate and to read on and to follow along. Literally, tilawa also means to follow because the reader follows the line on a page. You know, your eyes follow the words, right? That's why the word tilawa is used. So the same word is used for the sun following the moon. Okay? So this is, this is uh, you know, وَالشَّمْسِ وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا Right? The same verb is used. I swear by the moon as it follows the sun. Just like our eyes follow text on a page. But the riddle is the messenger didn't read. Allah says he's reading. But the, we know the Messenger والسلام, did not read. He did not read. He did not know how to read. He was narrating onto people. Yaqussu alaykum. Yaqussuna alaykum. The messengers, they narrate onto them the ayat. So how do we understand this? This is a profound reality of our deen. The Qur'an, I say this often, but it's good to re- repeat it. The Qur'an has a three-step journey. The Qur'an has a three-step journey. The first part of the Qur'an's journey is in lawhun mahfuz. It is in writing. It is with Allah in writing. Then from there, Allah Azza wa tells us about this in Surah Abasa. He says, "Kalla innaha tadkirah, faman sha'a dakarah fi suhufin mukarrama, marfu'atin mutahara bi aydi safara kiramin barara." These, this revelation that is coming to you, this reminder that is coming to you, is actually it started. Its journey starts over there, fi suhufin mukarrama, in purified and noble, ennobled scriptures that are with Allah that are in the company of the most, the highest ranked angels. And by the way, those scriptures are very high. Marfu'atin mutahara, bi'aydi safara. And in the hands of these scribes. And later on we learn about them, they are also katibin. They're writing. They're writing. So this, this revelation gets written down by the angels. Then it's given to Jibreel alayhi salam. Then Jibreel alayhi salam travels down with it and brings it to who? The messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He brings the, they bring the certified copy of the original Lawhul Mahfuz. The angel Jibreel brings it down to be read onto Jibreel alayhi, or to, to Muhammad sallam by Jibreel alayhi salam. And when this happens, we find in Sirat ibn Ishaq a very beautiful explanation of the Prophet himself. He gave this explanation himself. He says, "Ka'annahu maktubun ala qalbi." It is as though when the revelation comes, it gets written on my heart. As though the revelation gets written on my heart. So when the messenger in this ayah is reading, where is he reading from? He's reading from his heart. He's reading these purified scriptures that traveled all this way down, and they came where? Onto his heart. It came on your heart, so you may be from those who are convinced first. So from those... So, and by the way, we learn in different narrations, the heart of the messenger was purified, right? It was purified because the scriptures that were going to be written on his heart had to also, were also... Purified. What are the words we find here? Suhufan mutahara. Scriptures that are purified, cleansed. The heart was cleansed and the revelation that was put in it was also a cleansed revelation, a pure revelation. Now, beyond that, Allah Azza wa Jal says, فِيهَا كُتُبٌ قَيِّمًا In them, in those scriptures, were kutub, books. But the word kutub in Arabic actually means ahkam, laws, rulings. The word book more often than not, is used in Arabic literature for law. It's not really used for book as, it, as much as it is used for law. And we'll look at some commentary of the Mufassirun 
we'll highlight here the commentary of Ash-Shawkani, rahimahullah, wal-murad al-ayat wal-ahkam, al-maktuba fiha. So the, the meaning is the scriptures came, and within the scriptures there are laws. In other words, what it implies is there is more to the scripture than law. Law is in it, but law is not all there is. There is more to the scripture. There's other wisdom in the scripture too. So you know how sometimes believers, Muslims, we do this, we reduce our deen to just halal and haram. That's all Islam is, is do this and don't do this and that's it. That's all there is to it. But Allah says, no, fiha kutubun. In them there are laws. In those scriptures that were given to the Messenger ﷺ, there are laws but there's more to it than that too. Okay, but he's highlighting the laws and we'll see why in a little bit, inshallah ta'ala. So, fiha kutubun qayyimah. Then, the word qayyimah as a description of kutub, established, firm, upright laws. Laws that stand on their own. Qayyim actually means that which stands right and that's something that was crooked, it sets it straight too. Something was crooked and it sets it straight. And this is shown as the wisdom of the laws of Allah. The laws of Allah in and of themselves are clearly upright. They are good. But their establishment doesn't just, in and of itself isn't good, it takes all the crookedness in a society and it sets it straight. These are the, these are the benefits of the law of Allah. It sets society straight. So, qama shay, إِذَا stawa wa sahha in Arabic. You know, qayyima from qama. When you make something stand, when you make it right, and you correct it, you get rid of its, uh, its flaws. This word, kitab, just to show you more clearly that it's used in the sense of law, Allah says, كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَأَغْلِبَنَّا أَنَا وَرُسُلِي Allah has mandated, I and my messengers will dominate. In a hadith, in a sahih hadith, we find the messenger saying, لَأُخْضِيَنَّ بَيْنَكُمَا بِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ in the, in the narration of Rajam, Allah, the messenger of Allah says, I am declaring, I'm making a, a declaration over you by the book of Allah, بِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ but here the book of Allah doesn't mean Qur'an. The book of Allah means the law of Allah. Because Rajam isn't in the Qur'an. Right? So he used the phrase Kitabullah to talk about the law of Allah. That's how we understand it. Similarly in the Qur'an, Allah says, Kitabullahi alaykum. The book of Allah meaning the law of Allah binding upon you. Similarly, again, in, in uh, Baqarah, when Allah Azza wa talks about fasting and qisas, He says, Kutiba alaykum al-siyam. Kutiba alaykum al-qisas. Right? Kutiba alaykum al-qital. We translate that literally sometimes saying, fasting was written on you. But what that actually means is, fasting was made law, binding law upon you. And this is actually not that far from English literature. In English also, we say things like, you know, the judge threw the book at him. What does that mean? That means he used the full extent of the law against him. Okay? So I'm going by the book, I'm abiding by the law. Right? I'm driving by the book, meaning I'm observing the laws of driving. As I'm driving. So the word book implies legal jargon even in English literature. Now we come to the next ayah. This is absolutely beautiful. وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ بَيِّنَةِ in the beginning ayah. لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ They were in the first ayah. Now in the third or the fourth ayah again. وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ This is a remarkable contrast. Allah Azzawajal, by the way, in the first ayah mentioned people of the book and mushrikun. He mentioned two groups. But in this ayah only mentioned people of the book. He did not mention al-mushrikun. So this is a special case in the middle of the surah. Okay, now what is this? What is Allah talking about? Roughly translated, those who were given the uh, those who were given the book didn't fall into division among themselves 
until even after the clearest proofs came to them. The keywords are min ba'di, even after. Even after the clearest proofs came, they did no, no result happened except they fell into division among themselves. Most mufassirun comment that this ayah is talking about the people of the book, especially the Jews and the Christians among themselves. And this bayyinah in this ayah is a previous messenger, Isa alayhi salam. Allah is giving an example of a a historical event. When Isa alayhi salam came, when Jesus comes, what happens to the people of the book that were one unity? They got separated. And they only became separated only after this messenger came. Even after this messenger came, who was supposed to unite them, but what ended up happening was they became separated. They become separated among each other. So this is the first implication of the text. The second though, is an amazing contrast in this ayah. It's a beautiful, beautiful contrast in this ayah. If you look at the first ayah, Allah Azza wa Jal was talking about a journey from darkness to light. They used to be in kufr until bayina came, now they are in light. Min al-dhulumat ila nur in this ayah, there's the opposite journey from light to darkness. It's the contrast. These people had knowledge. They were given the book already. They were accepting of the truth. And when the messenger came, when the clearest proofs came, they rejected it, they fell into division. In other words, they fell into darkness. So when the first ayah was talking about a journey from darkness to light, this ayah is talking about a journey from light into darkness. And this darkness, you fell into this darkness even though you had knowledge. This is a very important and dangerous concept for the Muslims to understand. This occurs many times in the Quran. وَمَا تَفَرَّقُوا إِلَّا مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ بَغْيًا بَيْنَهُمْ مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْعِلْمِ مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ Over and over, Surah Al-Shura, Surah Al-Imran, Surah Al-Baqarah. Many places in the Quran, the same concept comes up. They didn't fall into disagreement until after knowledge came. They didn't fall into disagreement among each other until after, until after the, revel- the clearest proof came. And sometimes plurals, bayinat, the clearest proofs, the plural of bayina comes. Okay? So what is this disagreement? Allah is telling us a, so- a social reality. Religious knowledge is a weapon. Religious knowledge is a means of empowerment. When somebody has a lot of religious knowledge, especially in older societies, not so much, the, even to some extent the case is the same as the case today. Don't even think of other religions, just think of Islam. When someone has a lot of religious knowledge, they have a certain respect in that society. They have a certain status. And we know when they have that status, they're in this public place. People listen to them. People listen to them. And you know, this knowledge is not a safeguard against character or having bad character. You could be very knowledgeable and still be corrupt. Just because you're a scholar, just because you know a lot, doesn't mean that you're safe from corruption. Now when people come to the person of knowledge and they constantly praise them, and they put them up on a pedestal, is it possible their ego might start getting a little inflated? It's possible. And sometimes this happens, on the outside it's a scholar, but on the inside there's there's a very arrogant person brewing inside. But on the outside there's the facade of someone knowledgeable. And what happens to this person who's knowledgeable is when somebody else comes up who has more knowledge. Somebody else comes up that people start listening to. They start taking attention away from himself. So what does he do? He starts attacking the other. Don't listen to him, he's deviant. Don't listen to him, he's wrong. He's a liar. I'm telling you the truth, he's not telling you the truth. And the reason isn't that they want to promote the truth. The reason is they want to inflate their own ego. They saw that this guy is like competition. The other scholar, the other, the other one is like competition. This actually happened to the ulama of Bani Israel. 
the, the, the scholars of Bani Israel were very powerful. People used to listen to them all the time. They used to go to them for fatwa. Then Allah sends Isa alayhi salam. And Isa alayhi salam, is, he knows the book better than they do. And he's calling out their corruption. He's calling them out on it. Now they, the, the humble thing to do is accept your mistakes and go out and accept him as the messenger. But what did they do to protect their ego and to protect their status? What did they do? They came after him. And they fell into disagreement among each other. So Allah Azza wa is talking about the ones who supposedly have knowledge. The first I was talking about people of the book and mushrikun even though mushrikun don't have any knowledge. So the fact that they're fighting the truth, okay at least they're, they're ignorant. But the people of the book, even after the proofs came to them, even after knowledge came to them, because the preservation of their ego, the urge to dominate the other was so strong, they fell into disagreement. And by the way, we see elements of that even in the Muslim community. We see elements and fragmentation within the Muslim community sometimes. This one bashing that one. This speaker going against that speaker. This group going against that group. And sometimes the agenda isn't holding on to the truth. The deeply rooted agenda that they're hiding inside is ego. And Allah knows. Allah knows. Allah Azza wa mentions in Surah Al-Shura, very, that very reason, that, that motive on the inside. وَمَا تَفَرَّقُوا إِلَّا مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ بَغْيًا بَيْنَهُمْ out of an urge to dominate one another for no other reason but that they disagreed with each other and even after the truth even after the proofs came to them so here again the people of the book didn't fall into disagreement until after the clearest proofs came that's ironic the clearest proofs should make you want to lose your disagreements the clearest proofs come so you get rid of the disagreements but when the clearest proofs came, they fell into the worst disagreements. Why? Because their motives were not to find the truth, their motive was power, their motive was ego, their motive was other than this. Other than since they weren't sincere. If they were sincere, when the proof comes, your disagreements go away. But if you're not sincere, then disagreements come in handy. They, they, they come into play. And now, now that you understand this, if you look at the next ayah, we'll find sincerity. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ SubhanAllah Very next ayah talks about sincerity Because the root problem of disagreement among people of knowledge Vicious disagreement Not accepting Is actually this lack of sincerity Here's the final thing about this We already studied in this surah that Bayyina is two things Bayyina is the messenger and the message Bayyina Ya Rasulu min Allah Ya This surah has taught us That the concept of the clear proof is two things combined that cannot be separated. It is the messenger and the message. So when they fell into disagreement, they had to humble themselves to two things. They had to humble themselves before a messenger, and they had to humble themselves before a message. Two things. They were not able to do so, so they fell into disagreement. Now here's the thing. Humbling, before yourself, humbling yourself before a messenger, أَطِيعُ اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُ الرَّسُولِ This is humbling yourself before a messenger. Doing that is very difficult when you see him as just a man. Right? He's just a man. In, in life generally, it's hard for us to obey people that have authority over us. It's hard. People generally don't like their boss. Nobody likes the police officer. <laughs> right? People don't like government. It's, whoever has power over you, you have this tendency to, who's he? Why should I listen to him? Even kids, even college students don't like their professor. Man, he gives me too many term papers. Whoever has authority over you, you have a natural tendency to not like that authority over you. You want to be free. But this messenger from Allah comes, and he demands absolute authority. Unless you're truly sincere to Allah, you will not be able to overcome your ego. You will end up saying, why should I listen to him? He's just a man. 
I don't have to listen to him. I'll just I'll just obey the revelation. I won't obey him. I'll take Quran, but I won't take Sunnah. Have you heard that from people before? I'll take Quran, but I don't have to take the hadith of the Messenger. I won't take the Sunnah. You know what that is? That's an ego. Why should I listen to this man? I'm, I'll, okay, I'll take the message for myself. But what are you doing? You're separating al-bayyinah. Al-bayyinah according to Allah is both together. It is the messenger and the message. So on the one hand, they refuse to humble their ego before a man. And on the other hand, these are the same, these people of the book, when they got the messenger out of the picture, they found it easy to make changes in the book themselves. Right? So on the one hand, they're not listening to the messenger. On the other hand, they're corrupting the message. The whole bayyinah is gone. The whole clear proof is gone. You know, bayyina, there's a hadith about the word bayyina, just so you become clear of what this, this powerful word means. Al-bayyinatu ala al-mudda'i. The clear proof is a responsibility of the one making the claim. Wal-yaminu ala al-mudda'a alayhi. And the oath is on the one who a claim is made against. I'll put it to you in simple terms so you understand this hadith. This is very important to understand this concept of al-bayyina. Imagine you and I got in, got in an agreement. You borrowed $10 from me. Okay, you borrowed $10 from me. And then you denied it. Two weeks later you said, no, I didn't take any money from you. What are you talking about? The messenger says, if the one, who, ha, who has to produce the proof? I'm making a claim that you owe me $10. Right? So who has to produce the proof? I do. Al-Muddai. The one making the claim has to produce proof that you borrowed $10. If I cannot produce the proof, then the one who, who, took, an, who took it and refuses it, at least he has to swear, I swear he didn't take $10. Because if he swears, the curse of Allah is on him if he's lying. Right? Now what if I take out a video recording? I take out a video camera, I show a recording. Look, I made a tape of when you borrowed $10 from me. It's all on tape. If I bring a proof like that, if I produce a proof like that, is there any room for argument left? No. Case closed. Now I have clear, irrefutable proof, after which the case is finished. There is no counter-argument left. Because the, the tape speaks for itself, you understand? That is what revelation combined with the messenger is. It is a kind of proof after which there can be no counter-argument. That's what al-bayyina means. That's what that means. So now this is the essential. If, if, even if it's that clear, you will still fall into disagreement because there's something else going on, there's a lack of sincerity. One more comment about this ayah inshallah ta'ala, and we'll take a short break and reconvene. Uh, and that, uh, that comment has to do with the usage of the word utul kitab. In, the, in this surah, utul kitab came a couple of times. لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ And now, actually, أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ came first, utul kitab this time. وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ In the Qur'an, in many places, Allah says, آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابِ We gave them the book. Those who we gave the book to. That's the English rendition of it. Those who we gave the book to. And other places Allah says, those who were given the book. I'll say the English versions again. Those who we gave the book, that's one way of saying it. Those who we gave the book, of course we referring to Allah. Those who we gave the book. And the other one, those who were given the book. Now in the latter one, which is passive, you know, mabni al-majhul in Arabic and passive voice in English grammar, you don't find mention of Allah. When you say those who were given the book, I didn't mention Allah. When I say those who we gave the book to, now you see the mention of Allah in what word? We. 
Whenever Allah mentions those who were given the book, meaning He doesn't mention His name, it's usually something negative. In the entire Qur'an, whenever we find the phrase, those who were given the book, there's a negative context. Whenever we find, we gave them the book, Allah mentions Himself, there's always something positive. This is consistent across the entire Qur'an, and it's part of its miraculous consistency actually. Because Qur'an is not, it wasn't you know, written down, except on the heart of the Messenger, it was spoken. And when it's spoken, to maintain this kind of sensitive consistency is very very difficult. Look at these few ayat. نَبَذَ فَرِيقٌ مِّنَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ وَرَاءَ ظُهُورِهِمْ The people who were given the book, threw the book behind their backs, as though they didn't even know that was a book. Negative. They were given the book, أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ A negative thing. Then we find, وَلَئِنْ أَتَيْتَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ بِكُلِّ آيَةٍ مَا تَبِعُوا قِبْلَتَكَ If you were to show all the miraculous proofs to those who were given the book, they would not follow your qibla anyway. Again, something negative, those who were given the book. Then we find, إِن تُطِيعُوا فَرِيقًا مِّنَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ يَرُدُّكُمْ بَعْدَ إِيمَانِكُمْ كَافِرِينَ If you are to obey those who were given the book, if you were to listen to them, pay attention to them, they will turn you back after you have, ter- after you have found faith and reduce you to disbelievers. أَلَمْ تَرَى إِلَى الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا نَصِيبًا مِنَ الْكِتَابِ يَشْتَرُونَ الضَّلَالَةِ Didn't you see the one who were given a portion from the book, selling or, or, or purchasing misguidance? وَيُرِيدُونَ أَن تَضِلُّ السَّبِيلِ And they want that you should be misled from the path. Now look at the other side. الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابِ Those who we gave the book. Now this is what Allah mentions Himself, right? الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابِ Those who we gave the book, يَتْلُونَهُ حَقَّ تِلَاوَتِهِ They read it like it deserves to be read. Something positive. Then Allah says, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحُكْمَ وَالنُّبُوَةِ Those are the ones who we gave the book and, of, and strength and prophethood. Something positive. وَالَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابَ يَفْرَحُونَ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ Those who we gave the book are, are overjoyed because of what we have sent to you. الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ هُمْ بِهِ يُؤْمِنُونَ Those who we gave the book, much before this, they have true belief in it. وَكَذَلِكَ أَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الْكِتَابِ فَالَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِهِ Those who we gave the book have real iman in it. So when the, when the passive is used, we find something negative. And when the active is used, we gave the book, we find something positive. And this is found consistently in the entire Qur'an. At this point, inshallah ta'ala, we'll take a short break. What time is the Aisha prayer nowadays? 8.30? Okay, so this is a good time to take the break anyway. We'll reconvene after the Ashat prayer and finish the study of Surah Al-Bayyinah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. To download more lectures, learn more about our project, and to help support it, visit www.bayyinah.com slash dream. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H slash dream. You are free to share these recordings with family and friends. Thank you and Jazakumullah Khairan for helping us make our dream a reality. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajeem Wa ma umiru illa liya'budu Allah mukhlisina lahuddina hunafaa wa yuqimu salata wa yu'tu zakata wa thalika deenul qayyimah إن الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب والمشركين في نار جهنم خالدين فيها أولئك هم شر البرية 
إن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات أولئك هم خير البرية جزاؤهم عند ربهم جنات عدن تجري من تحتها الأنهار خالدين فيها أبدا رضي الله عنهم ورضوا عنه ذلك لمن خشي ربه رب الشحل صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي والحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر آمين يا رب العالمين uh, We reached the fifth ayah of Surah Al-Bayyina The first four ayat as I mentioned in the beginning are, are some of the toughest ayat in tafsir studies Nadman wa tafsiran as Imam Al-Wahidi says In terms of their sequence and structure And also in terms of their interpretation We dealt with some of those difficult issues before But now we're moving on to the latter half of the surah And inshallah ta'ala making a logical connection with what already preceded First and foremost we, let, we said in the last ayah وَمَا تَفَرَّقُوا إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ uh, or illa min ba'di ma ja'atul bayyina rather the people who were given the book didn't fall into disagreement until after the clearest proof came to them we talked about the reasons of falling into disagreement being insincerity arrogance the urge to dominate as allah says baghiyan baynahum now how do you what's the opposite of this corruption that's on the inside what was supposed to be on the inside instead allah azza wa jalla in the next ayah gives us an the, the essential summary of the entire deen and this is one of the beauties of this surah. You know, its name is absolutely crystal clear. Bayyana means that which is crystal clear. And one of the things this book, this surah does, it summarizes the teachings of the Qur'an, the mission of the Messenger ﷺ, and the entire purpose of the book into one small statement. And that's the statement we're about to study. وَمَا أُمِرُوا And what, if, any, if anything, were they commanded, إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ Except that they fall into worship of Allah. That's number one. Before we go any further, I, I, I know I've talked about this sometimes before, but this is something that deserves attention and, and, and should be discussed thoroughly, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on it. The concept of ibadah. From a linguistic point of view, we're not even going into the full you know, uh, discussion. One of the most beautiful discussions on ibadah is uh, actually compiled by Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah who talks about the five conditions of being a slave of Allah. I'll at least highlight those five things. But for now, inshallah ta'ala, some, some other issues. Commonly, ibadah, liya'budullah, so that they worship Allah. The English translation says, worship. The, the key term is worship. Uh, we have to address the gap between the Arabic word, liya'budu, or abada, or ya'budu, or even in the Fatiha, iyaka na'budu, the gap between that and the English word worship, because there is a gap. And if we don't understand that gap, sometimes there's a gap in our understanding. You know, if we don't truly fill that void, then there's something missing in what we're, we're uh, reading from the Qur'an. The word worship in the English language is very specific. It's used for particular acts of worship offered at particular times. And worship is specific to specific religions. So for example, uh, the Christian has his own mode of worship. The Muslims have our own mode of worship. Jews may have their own mode of worship. Hindus may have their own mode of worship. But if you ask somebody who speaks the English language, what comes to your mind when you think of worship? What images pop in your mind? 
the images that will pop in their mind of somebody kneeling, somebody bowing down, somebody you know at a church, at a synagogue, these are the kinds of images that crop in the mind, right? And because we're translating from Arabic to English, we have to be careful about the words we choose and the images they conjure up in the minds of the people who speak that language, right? The word abada in Arabic includes the meaning of worship, but it has another distinctly separate connotation also, and that is that of slavery. So abd is a, you know, abid is a worshiper, but abd is actually a slave. What's the difference between a worshiper and a slave? And actually, if you, you know, in English actually at least, there's a huge difference. They may not have anything to do with each other. Somebody who's worshipping may not be a slave, and somebody who's a slave may not be worshipping. They could, they could be two mutually exclusive things. But when we use the word ibadah in Arabic, we actually combine two concepts together. That of worship, and also that of slavery. These are together. So when we say about, when we translate the ayah saying, إِلَّا What were they commanded except that they should worship Allah? Then we're missing the other half. We're missing the other half that's, that's implied, that's meant, but we didn't capture it. Okay, now what's the opposite of abd in Arabic? It is rabb. The antonym, the linguistic antonym of abd is rabb. But abd is two things, right? It could be one who is a slave and the one who what? Worships also. Abd in, in, a, in, a, in a larger sense, a, a great worshipper. If you think of it in the mean of, meaning of slave, right, abd, then the opposite in Arabic is rabb. If you think of it in the meaning of worshipper, then the opposite of abd is ilah. So it has two antonyms, one from the meaning of worship and other from the meaning of slavery. Two separate op, uh, uh, antonyms. But both are implied when Allah uses the word abd in, in verbal form, in nominal form, as a noun, as a verb. Both of those meanings are meant. So the first thing I want to do, I think everybody here is pretty clear about what worship means. I want to clarify some things about what slavery means. So that we have a little bit more comprehensive view of the ayah and of the term as it occurs in the Qur'an in general. Because, I, and I, I'm taking the time to explain this, because as I said, this ayah represents a, a summary of the entire Qur'an. What were they told to do except, and then Allah says, Allah, So they may become ibad of Allah, so they may enter into slavery of Allah and worship. The first thing, is slavery is different from worship because slavery has no time associated with it. Worship is at a certain time, at a certain place, a certain activity. But a slave, when is he a slave? When he's sleeping, he's a slave. When he's awake, he's a slave. When he's eating, when he's not eating, when he's changing his clothes, when he's working, when he's on vacation, he's always a slave. A slave, so slavery is a state of being. While worship is an act itself, you understand? Someone can be a worshiper at certain times, but they're not always a worshiper. But a slave is what? Always a slave. They're always the same. That's one huge difference between the two. The other thing sometimes to be politically correct, some people translate instead of slave, they use the word servant or humble servant. Some translations offer the word servant, which of course comes from the English word service, right? And even service is, is you know, you're a servant at your company. If you're an accountant, you serve your company. You're a servant for them. A servant could be a janitor. A servant could be somebody working a job. But in any of those scenarios, service is a give and take. It's an exchange. It's getting louder and louder. Hold on, I'll wait. Thank you. Okay. So, service is an exchange. I provide a service, what do I expect in return? To be paid. A service, and also service is specified. If your service is you're an accountant, you cannot be asked to wash the windows. Unless the economy is really bad. Right? But usually, if your service is one thing, 
You're not asked for anything else. But in slavery, what are you asked to do? Everything that the master says. Everything that the master says you have to do. Right? So it's totally different from the idea of service. And significantly different also from the idea of worship. Both of those things are separate. That's the first issue with slavery. The second issue with slavery is as it is understood in the world, slavery is never something you want to enter into. Slavery is usually something forced upon you. Worship is something you do voluntarily. But slavery is never voluntary, it's always involuntary. No, but you could apply for a job as a, you know, in a service. You could be in a certain service industry and apply to become part of that service. But you don't apply to become what? You don't apply to become, you don't apply, give an application and say, I, I love taking beatings and I love chains around my neck. And, you, know, you don't do that. It doesn't make any sense. The one who is in slavery would want nothing more to be free of that slavery. That's the nature of slavery in human history. So it does conjure up negative images. Because of those negative images though, we cannot abandon the term and stop being true to the text. We have to still be true to the text while still fully explaining the concept. The thing is, in this slavery, who's the master? Allah. And Allah is nothing like His creations. He's far above His creations. In every other slavery, another human being is the master. Right? Another human being is the master. But in this slavery, Allah is the master. And since Allah is completely different from all of His creations, when He is the master, He's a different kind of master. A kind of master that no other master can be like. Even in the Fatiha, before we call Him Rabb, what do we say? Alhamdulillahi Rabb. We say Alhamdulillah first. Which means we praise Him and we show Him gratitude first. No slave, no master is praised, no master is shown gratitude except Allah. Every other master is cursed. Every other master is complained about. But Allah, before He even tells us He's master, what does He tell us? Alhamdulillah. Right? It's a different kind of master. Which means if He's a different kind of master, we must be a different kind of slave. You understand so far? So now what is this concept of slavery that we're getting at? Every other slavery is coerced, it's forced, but this slavery is willing. You walk into this slavery, you accept this slavery yourself. Even in Fatiha, he didn't say, Urbudu, enslave yourselves, worship and enslave yourselves. We said, Iyakanabudu, we declared it. We, we enter into the slavery and worship of you only. That's essentially. what we said. So now this is the uniqueness of Allah's mastery is that we enter into this slavery willingly and we enter into it willingly and secondly that this slavery instead of being based on anything else the primary drive the primary drive of this slavery instead of the master being hated is that the master is loved. It's a different kind of slavery. What were those five conditions that I was referring to before? The first of them is actually love. That to be a slave of Allah, you have to love Allah. You can't be considered his slave until you love him. And what that love means is everything else you love must be less than the love you have for Allah. And every other thing you love must be dictated by the love you have for Allah. So you cannot love your wife or your children or your family or your whatever, unless that love is taba'an, it's underneath, it's in submission to the love you have for Allah. That's the first condition of slavery. The second is obedience. You know, like the Messenger says, there's no obedience to the creation in, in a while disobeying the Creator, basically. Okay? In other words, 
We can obey, you have to obey your boss, you have to obey traffic laws, yes, you have to obey other things. But none of those obediences can exist while you are in disobedience to Allah. That obedience comes first. That's the second consideration of Allah's slavery. So the first one was love, and the second one is obedience. The third one is sincerity. And what, what that means is, everything you do is you do it as a slave now. It's not some things you do as a slave. You know, if you're a worshiper, only salah is for Allah, everything else is for you. Right? But if you're a slave, what is everything for? Or who is everything for? Everything's for Allah. Everything, your job is for the sake of Allah, your family is for the sake of Allah, your worship is for the sake of Allah, everything's for the sake of Allah. But when you just think of yourself as a worshiper, you only give one part of your life to Allah. You don't give the whole thing to Allah. So Allah teaches us in the Qur'an, إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَحْيَايَا وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Rabb again. My prayer belongs to Allah. It's for, for His sake. My sacrifice is for His sake. My life and my death are also for His sake. You know what that means practically? It practically means that when I make career goals, when I make family goals, when I make business goals, what is my ultimate agenda? What's my lo- what, are, what are these things for? They are for the service of my... Master. It's a change of attitude. So even most Muslims today, when we look at the ayat, when Allah calls us to become His slave, what do we reduce it to most of the time? We reduce it to worship. He's asking for something way more. It's something huge, it's something tremendous. So we've got, we've got three conditions so far. What do you have? We have love, obedience, sincerity. Our motives are now directed by Allah, sincerely for the sake of Allah, and that's gonna come up in this ayah. Then two more. The next condition is trust. Tawakkul. We have to have trust in our master. By the way, these five conditions, which scholar did I say? Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah. This, these five conditions of slavery, right? You have to have absolute trust in this master. Whatever he does, you have to trust is good for you. Whatever he gives you is good for you. Whatever he didn't give you, he didn't give you because it's good for you. If you got something, it's from Allah, it's a gift. If you didn't get something, there's also good in that. You have absolute trust. Whatever may happen, Whatever may occur, it is because of Allah's decree. إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مِّن قَبْلِ أَنَّ بْرَأَهَا لِكَيْ لَا تَأْسَوْ عَلَى مَا فَاتَكُمْ وَلَا تَفْرَحُوا عَلَى مَا آتَكُمْ It's simple. You know, whatever He may give you, so you don't become sad over what you lose, you don't become overjoyed over what you gain, everything is from Allah. Your tawakkul is placed, your complete reliance and trust is placed in Allah. So this, ma- this slave does not put his trust in means. You don't trust your car because it's a reliable, reliable company. You don't trust your family. Your trust in them comes from who? From trust. Your expectations come from Allah, not from your family. When you place your trust in creation, you will always be disappointed. When you place your trust in Allah, nothing will disappoint you. Nothing will disappoint you. So this is trust, tawakkul. And finally, it's the terms of slavery, which is a very interesting concept. The terms of slavery means, you know, in every relationship there are terms. The teacher and the student. There's a relationship. There's a relationship. And in that relationship, both parties have certain responsibilities. In a parent and child relationship, again, both sides have certain responsibilities, don't they? Employer-employee, both sides have certain understanding. You have to come to work at this time, you have to leave at this time. You'll be paid on this day, this is how much you will be paid. Do this, don't do this, there's terms. We understand that the terms of this slavery are not dictated by us. We understand that the terms of this slavery are dictated by him, the master. In other words, what does it mean to be a good slave? That definition doesn't come from me. That those standards don't come from me. I cannot think for myself, I think I'm a pretty good slave. I think I'm doing alright. From your own assumption. You can't do that. 
those standards of what makes you a slave and what makes you a rebel, those standards are dictated by him and you have no hand in them. You have no say in them. This is the problem of most people and their relationship with God. Even if they'll tell you, I love God too, man. You Muslims, you love God? We love Him too. I love God too. Well, how do you please Him? Whatever my heart tells me. My heart tells me this is good. That's why I do it. That concept doesn't exist for us. Why not? Because who's dictating what's good and what's bad? Allah Azza wa Jalla. He put the fitrah inside of us, yes. But what's dictated is it comes from the Master. These are the conditions of slavery. And this is the essence of this deen. In the end, what is this guidance about? You become slave, you accept him as master. That's the essence of Qur'an. In the end, that is the, the juice of the matter. And it is this concept that is nowadays being separated or, or not being understood in line with worship. These are two separate things. So in my recommended translation, Wallahu ta'ala alam, they were not commanded except that they may fall into slavery and worship of Allah. That's, that would be at the very least what I would have to translate Now we come to the next part Making their, the, the religion, the deen Sincerely for his sake What that implies is And lahu is muqaddam This jarwa majrur is muqaddam Which means only and only for him That they would make this deen sincere It implies that there are those Who do worship Allah Who do become slaves of Allah But they don't make their religion Sincere only for him. They do some things for him, some things for themselves. And this is what the previous ayah is talking about. The previous ayah talked about the people who were given the book, they had knowledge. But they fell into disagreement. Why? Because there was some, yeah, we worship Allah, we pray to Him, but there should be some of our ego in there too. I deserve some, some things too. And this, again, I want to put it in practical terms. What are the implications of, of, of this? Especially those who serve Allah's deen, people who volunteer at masajid or MSAs or Islamic organizations or da'wah organizations or things like that. When we, when we volunteer our services for the sake of Allah, then oftentimes shaitan makes us lose our sincerity and makes us fight each other. And when we fight each other, you know what gets challenged? Our egos. And when you start disagreeing with others based on the elevation of your ego, your sincerity is gone. You're not doing it for Allah anymore. Who are you doing it for? You're doing it for yourself. And even when you leave, you know, a lot of times what happens is, you're, worshiping, you're, you're doing it for the sake of Allah, you're helping out, you're volunteering, you're doing this and that, nobody appreciates you. Nobody appreciates Nobody says a word of thanks to you. Or they even insult you at the meeting, or they're mean to you. And you say, I don't want to be at this masjid anymore, I don't want to be at that organization anymore, because they don't appreciate me. Because they were mean to me. Because this or because of that. Why were you there? To be appreciated? Did you join this? Did you put these hours in? Who were you expecting to get paid from? Were you expecting that your salary is going to be? People will say, MashaAllah, really nice guy. Were your, were your expectations from people or were your expectations from Allah? Right? These are a pretty good, pretty good gauge. This actually happens to people who take the mic. This is very scary for myself and you know, for all du'at and speakers and scholars. When you take the mic enough times and you speak publicly a lot, most of the time people appreciate what you have to say. But sometimes people don't. Somebody comes up and says, I think you're wrong. I think you didn't do, say this right. This is absolutely incorrect. You're misguided, you're deviant, you're this, you're that and the other. When you get used to being praised all the time, and somebody comes up and starts going at you, especially publicly, you know what you say? Forget it, I'm never speaking again. These people don't appreciate me. You know, who does he think he is? Etc, etc. Listen, when the messenger spoke, والسلام, the ultimate da'i, when he spoke, most of the time he wasn't praised. Most of the time he was criticized. 
Most of the time he was ridiculed. And not some light criticism that I respectfully disagree with you. I don't think the tafsir is this. I don't think that hadith is this way. The things people would say was, you're insane, you're a liar, right? They'd poke fun at him. These are the kinds of insults that are hurled at a messenger. And look at his sincerity, he doesn't expect from them, he expects from Allah. He expects from Allah. So, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ This is very hard. It's easy to recite and say, yeah, sincere for the, making the deen completely sincere to him. SubhanAllah. Even look at the story of Iblis. It's crazy. This guy worshipped Allah for how long? You know, you read the narrations? He worshipped Allah for a very long time. And even when he disobeyed Allah, over what? Allah said, إِنِّي جَعِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةً Isn't that the case? Allah was going to send a slave on the earth who was going to basically obey Allah Azza wa Jal. He's fighting for religious recognition. He wasn't going to get paid money. Why did he refuse this, this honor? What, this, what, was this, what did this honor have to do with? Wealth? Power? What did it have to do with? All it was, was an honor Allah had given. وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ And what's this ikram? What's this takreem of Bani Adam? That they get to be Allah's slaves on this earth. That's it. And he's fighting over that. So religion can be a fight for recognition. And that happens sometimes within the religious ranks. This was a disease of Bani Israel, and unfortunately that virus has made its way, like the H1N1, into our community too. It's come in. The ikhlas is, is challenged. And the people of knowledge are the people that fall into disagreement. And so the cure, the, the disease mentioned in the fourth ayah, the cure mentioned in the fifth. وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ The people who were given the book didn't fall into disagreement until after Al-Bayyina came, and then the next ayah, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ Now the beautiful uh, word Allah gives an adjective to these مُخْلِصِين, calling them حُنَفَاء. Al-Hanaf, هُوَ مَيْلٌ عَنِ الضَّلَالِ إِلَى الْإِسْتِقَامَةِ Hanaf, the, the, the root word means to incline away from misguidance towards uprightness and being straight and remaining committed and not being distracted by any other distraction. Another word related to it in Arabic, when you manipulate root letters, then similar meanings are created. There's the word hanaf and there's the word janaf. So what's the only thing that changed? Ha to jim, right? That's the opposite. هُوَ مَيْلٌ عَلَى الْإِسْتِقَامَةِ إِلَى That's when you incline towards deviation, walking away from the straight path, walking away from good, goodness. The, the word hanif is used in, in many, many, it's been interpreted in many, many hadith. We'll just suffice by narrating a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. I have been appointed with the, the religion that is solely dedicated. And it's straight and forward, and it's easy. And it's easy to follow. Right? And this is, this is the attribute given to Ibrahim ﷺ because he was solely dedicated to Allah. Nothing would distract him. And his dedication to Allah Azza wa May Allah give us uh, this, this Hanifiyyah and make us Hunafa. And that they should establish the salah and give the zakah. So this is basically, this ayah is the essence of the deen that's always been there. From the, from the very earliest revelations to now, what is the core of the deen? Become Allah's slaves, establish prayer, give zakah. That's it. And the way the ulama looked at that is, ibadat mu'amalat. Ibadat as-salah. Mu'amalat Zakah. zakah is given to who? Those who need, right? So one is a service to Allah and the other is a service to people, all sincerely for the sake of Allah in the end. So it's, it summarizes the entire religion. And then Allah concludes, وَذَٰلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةِ And that is, now دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةِ literally would be translated the, the, the religion of or the way of life of الْقَيِّمَةِ The established, the firm. 
There's an oven between them, there's an idafa. But sometimes in the Arabic language, when there's idafa like this, there, there's actually an, uh, an adjective situation. So it's actually mosul sifa in the face of an idafa. I know if you don't know Arabic grammar, this feels, sounds a little confusing. But that's the point. Make you feel bad a little, so you start studying some Arabic, inshallah. So that's the agenda. Anyway, the al-qayyimah, the, the, the truly established religion. That's one interpretation. Other scholars say there's the word al-millah uh, implied here is mahdhuf. So, وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْمِلَّةِ الْقَيِّمَةِ So the millah is understood. This is the religion of the established nation. And by saying that, Allah Azza wa Jal is implying that this, de- this deen will have victory in the end. It will be al-qayyimah. Those who do this. Those who fulfill this will be on top. If not in this world, definitely in the next. Definitely in the next. They will be the ones that will remain and be, they have something firm. Same root, Allah Azza wa Jal makes a challenge to people of the book. From Qama, from Qayyimah, right? لَسْتُمْ عَلَىٰ شَيْءٍ يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ لَسْتُمْ عَلَىٰ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى تُقِيمُ التَّوْرَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ O people of the book, you have no basis. You have no justification for your existence. Until you establish, same word, تُقِيمُ To establish, this is the established religion. حَتَّى تُقِيمُ التَّوْرَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ Until you establish a Torah and al-Injil, the, the revelations that were given to you. Uh, before we move on, inshallah ta'ala, another thing, another beautiful thing about this ayah, which is a summary of the religion, it begins with what's going on inside, ikhlas. And moves to what is outside, iqamatul salah wa ita'uz zakah. Our entire deen is that, cleanse, you clean yourself on the inside, and it naturally manifests in what is on the outside. Remember before the salah, we talked about different kinds of people, and they have different things inside. Right? This deen, what it does is make sure the inside is clean and then the outside behavior manifests. Ad-deenu qawlun wa amalun. Inna al-lazina kafaroo min ahli al-kitabi wal-mushrikina fi nari jahannama khalidina fiha ulaika hum sharrul bariyah. We're coming to the conclusion of the surah. And the surah is tying itself with what it began with. It began with lam yakun al-lazina kafaroo min ahli al-kitab wal-mushrikin. It began with the discussion of those people and how they weren't going to separate among themselves. That discussion we had. Now for those who even after Al-Bayyina came, they want to stay the way they are. They want to stay in their kufr, whether they belong to the people of the book, or they belong to the people who did shirk. What's their fate? Fi nari jahannama. They are and will be in the fire of hell. Jahannam is a Persian word. It comes from, uh, the origin of it is jahannam, which means torture chamber. Okay? And, and because it's ism alam, it's brought from another language, that's why it doesn't take kasra ever in Arabic. Anyhow, فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَا خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا They will remain in it. خُلْد uh, in Arabic is to remain permanently somewhere. So they will remain permanently in it. أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ شَرُّ الْبَرِيَّةِ Those in fact are the ones that are the worst and the most vicious and the most, the, the nastiest. شَرْ الْبَرِيَّةِ Bariya comes from bara'a in Arabic which literally means to bring something into existence. Bariya, anything that exists would be counted under bariya. So Allah is saying, those who disbelieved, whether they belong to the people of the book, or they were from the mushrikun of the Arabs, they are going to be in the fire of hell. And why so? Because they are the worst of all existence. They are the worst, worst of all existence. Why? What would make them the worst of all existence? It is because Allah had given them al-bayyinah. Allah gave them no, such a proof from which you cannot counter. You have no justification for leaving it. And they still left in their kufr? Even after the clearest light, clearest proof came to them, after Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufa mutahara came to them, they still wanted to end up in kufr, nobody could be worse than these people. So these are sharrul bariyya. 
On the other hand, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ Without a doubt, those who believed, where is iman? Inside. وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ And acted righteously. Where is that? On the outside. First the inside, then the outside. Isn't that in the previous discussion too? There was ikhlas first, and then iqamu salah ita zikah. Same concept again. So now, By the way, inna in the beginning of the ayah. Sometimes Allah says inna, sometimes He doesn't. Inna is a good indication of the audience. Inna in Arabic is used, of course, harf at tawkid. It's used when the audience at hand is in some confusion. They're not sure. They're not sure. So they have to be given certainty. So, you know, Allah speaks with the audience in mind. You know, and you get a good insight into the audience by the kind of language Allah uses. So the audience here is those who needs to hear, this is for sure going to happen. This is not some, you know, uh, some casual thing. Get the doubts out of your head. Izalat al-shak. Get it out of your minds. This for sure will happen. These are the worst of people. They will be in hellfire. These are the best of people. Ula'ikahum khayrul bariyya. Those are the best of all existence. Jaza'uhum inda rabbihim. Their pay, their reward, with their Lord, with their master. From the beginning of the ayah, we already learned the slave of Allah does not expect to get paid ex- until with Allah. Okay? They don't expect pay here, they expect it with Allah Azza wa Jalla. They know already, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اشْتَرَى مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَنفُسَهُمْ وَأَمْوَالَهُمْ بِأَنَّ لَهُمْ الْجَنَّةِ The reward isn't here, the pay isn't here, the pay is there. And they're happy with that. They're happy with getting paid there. They'd rather not just enjoy it a little here and then nothing there. They'd rather get it all there. So their expectations, this tawakkul, one of the conditions of slavery that Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah mentioned, that's being applied here. أُولَٰئِكَ جَزَاؤُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ جَنَّاتُ عَدْنٍ تَجْرِي The gardens of Adn, one of the higher places in paradise. تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ At the foots of which rivers are flowing. This, even this description comes so many times in the Qur'an, right? تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ Jannat, all the time in the Qur'an. But we don't stop and think about it. We don't stop and reflect. What is Allah offering us? You know, to this day, I've traveled so much of the United States, and I've seen the same thing. The richest households, the most expensive houses, the most prime real estate, guess what? A swimming pool, a nice lawn, gardens and water, beachfront properties, riverfront properties. It's, an, it's a human obsession Oh man, a house like that. When you go on vacation, where do you go? You go somewhere that has a lot of nature, a lot of jannat, and you'd really love to go somewhere where there's a waterfall, or there's a river flowing, or there's an ocean. The water is an obsession. People go to vacation to go see water. People go see Niagara Falls, water falling. Right? It's an obsession in the human mind. Allah tells us things, you know, I, I bring this up because some intellectuals who think they're intellectuals claim the Qur'an you know, gives, motivates people towards things that are primitive. It was talking to a bunch of desert people. Of course, he told them about gardens and water because that's what they didn't have, right? They didn't have gardens and they didn't have water. So it's just talking to these primitive Arabs. It's not really talking to the sophisticated philosophical mind because we would require something higher. You know, if they're that sophisticated, then how come even in the most modern of times, our obsessions are still garden and water? To this day. (laughs) To this day. Subhanallah. So Allah gives us, He's offering us what we wanted all along. You know, and, and as you get older, I've noticed this, as people get older, they really get into gardening. Right? They, they love taking care of their garden. There's this thing of, of older maturity to enjoy, 
you know, nice nature to take a walk in a park and enjoy the garden and, you know, serene environment around you. And this is, this is a desire that builds inside people, no matter what culture, what religion. Allah knows who He created. And He offers them this, but He can't have it yet, you gotta wait. Right? Jannatun tajri min tahtihal anhar. This time He says, خَالِدِينَ fiha abada. They will remain in it permanently. Abadan, without end, permanently. The word abadan was not used for hellfire. But it is used for Jannah. This has led to some confusion with some people. Two places in the Qur'an this happens. That for Jannah we get abadan, and for nar we don't get abadan. This is one of those places. The other place is Surah Taghabun, Surah number 64. There are very few scholars in our history that had a certain shad opinion. It's only fair to mention it, because it includes heavyweights like Ibn Taymiyyah himself, rahimahullah who actually believed that the hellfire will eventually come to an end. And eventually, it won't be there anymore. Jannah is permanent, but Nar is not permanent. This is a very rare opinion. This is not the majority opinion, of course. But it does exist. So it's only honest to mention that that opinion did exist. What was that opinion based on? It was based on these two citations in which Allah mentions Abadan with, with, with the Jannah, but doesn't mention it with Nar. So this is a very rare opinion, but it does exist. How did the majority of scholars understand it though? First of all, in the entire Qur'an, has abadan been used for hellfire too? Yes. Abadan has been used for hellfire also. But from a rhetorical point of view, the purpose, the way, the, the style of speech is something else. It's telling us something else. You see in the Qur'an, sometimes Allah is, explains hellfire more and paradise less. Sometimes He explains paradise more and hellfire less. There's different proportions. When they are equal proportions, they both get abadan, or they neither get they're equal. When one is given more information than the other, then the wording is more elaborate than the other. This is the case here. If you look at the first ayah, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ شَرُّ الْبَرِّيَةِ One ayah for the people of hellfire. If you look at the, the, the seventh and the eighth ayah of the surah, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ خَيْرُ الْبَرِيَّةِ One ayah, جَزَاؤُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ جَنَّاتٌ تَجْرِي مِنْ, جنات عدل تجري من تحتها الْأَنْهَارِ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ And then Abadah is in there too. Much more detail given to the people of paradise. When more detail is given to one group, more wording is used for that group. This is part of the style of the Qur'an. Okay, so that's that's the justification of abada here. Nonetheless, we acknowledge that 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 opinion does exist. Anyhow, now we're up to the part khalidina fiha abada. They will remain in it permanently. Again, something that speaks to human nature. Why does it speak to human nature? We want nothing more than permanent residence, right? And so I'm not talking about immigration, but that that's included, right? Or you know, citizenship. Or you don't want to rent, what do you want to do? You want to own. You don't want to just own, you want to pay it off. So generations from now, it's in your family. It's not just yours, it's for your, yours for generations. There's this desire to want to have what's called stability. You want stability. You don't want to be, if you're a young man or a woman, or you know, especially young men, they have a good job, they're living in an apartment, salary is good, what are your parents always telling you? Buy a house, buy a house, buy a house. Settle down. They're telling you to settle down. Allah says here, you can settle down. Khalidina fiha abada. You can remain in it permanently. And this is amazing housing because there are no bills, there's no maintenance, there's no plumbing, there's no electrical problems, right? There's no HOA dues, nothing. 
خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا Without any of the strings attached. And this is, this is Allah's gift to us. And you know when you compare it, whatever Allah has to offer in Jannah, when you compare it to whatever you have in dunya, you will see how the dunya fails. How it fails. The most beautiful home, it gets dirty. Right? It has to be maintained. It starts falling apart. It starts getting boring. It starts, cracks start showing up. Things happen. But those homes, خَالِدِينَ fiha abada. The most expensive house, you were living in it, financial troubles came, you couldn't pay property tax, now the government steps in. Right? Something's always there. It's never totally yours. It's never totally yours. But Allah is saying, this is totally yours. What an incredible motivation Allah gives. So it's the, the essence of the deen in the one ayah, and the essential motivation. I'm giving you a house. The essential motivation in the other ayah, which is at the, at the heart of every human being's desire. At the heart of every human being's desire, there's a, there's a desire for a nice house. Every one of us has it, it's pre-programmed. We can't even fight it. And those of you that are younger, don't think who have it, I'll talk to you in a couple of years. Same, it, it, if it's not there before, it kicks in later. But it kicks in. And you can't even help yourself. So Allah speaks to our nature. Then He says, the ultimate gift. This was the small gift, by the way. The ayah is gonna get bigger. The bigger gift is coming. رَضِي اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ Allah will be satisfied with them. Allah will be pleased with them. This is, the, this is Allah's promise to those who simply did what? لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَا وَيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَيُؤْتُ الزَّكَاةَ One ayah, basically a transformational ayah, you fulfill that, Allah is happy with you. The master is happy with the slave. رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ And unlike any other slave, وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ And they will be completely satisfied and pleased with him too. Rida in Arabic means to be pleased with someone to the point where you have no complaints. You have no issues left. Everything, you're totally happy with them, you wouldn't want it any other way. There's no room for improvement. I wish you did this too. No, it's com- Allah is completely happy with them. And they are completely happy with Allah. Your kids even are never completely happy with you. Even when you buy them stuff. Right? There's always something more you could have bought for them. Your wife is never completely happy with you. Your husband is never completely happy with you. Your parents are definitely never completely happy with you. Right? But this Allah, Allah will be completely happy. It's, it's an incredible gift. This gift makes you forget about the house and the jannah and the gardens because Allah, you know, He built it up. You're thinking about this nice house. Let me tell you about even a bigger gift. And then imagine the way Allah will be gift you, you will be so happy, no other thought will come in your mind. Even the most wealthy person, when they get the, everything they want, there's always something empty. Man, what, I, want, I want something more. I'm bored. They're completely satisfied with him. And then at the end of this surah is something that ties to the beginning and we conclude. That is for the one who truly feared. Khashya. Khashya is in Arabic the fear of something greater than yourself. That's what khashya is. Different from khawf. Khashya is the fear of something greater than yourself. That is for the one who truly feared his master. Khashya rabbahu. The one he worships and the one he is a slave to. The surah began with a discussion of how the world was fragmented. Munfakin. They were not going the world was not going to be brought, you know, these lines were not going to be drawn until Al Bayina came. We started in the beginning talking about how when this revelation came, this revelation that came down in the night of power, how powerful the revelation itself was that the world was divided into the people of La ilaha illallah and everybody else. The world was divided. 
But who were these people? Who truly feared their master. We said this in the beginning, I'll just reiterate it and I'm done. The, you know the word munfakina in the first ayah? لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Infikak in Arabic, infakka al-azam like I said, when, the, when, your, when your bone is in the place in your shoulder, and it's dislocated, that's called infakka al-azam. The, the bone is dislocated because of weakness. It's a painful dislocation. This is the image given of people who said La ilaha illallah and disconnected themselves from their ways of kufr and shirk before Islam. It wasn't easy because their families were doing and their society was doing the same thing for thousands of years sometimes. Hundreds of thousands of years. Their citizenship, their respect, their dignity depended on their religious identity and they walked away. They dislocated themselves from their religious identity when Bayina came, when this true, true, completely undeniable proof came. This is because they did not fear what's going to happen in that society. They did not fear that they're going to get ridiculed. Whether they were Muslims from Persia, whether they were Muslims from India later on in Islamic history, or the Sahaba themselves in the Prophet's life. They didn't fear when they disconnect themselves from the society of kufr, what will happen? Because who did they fear more? If they didn't fear the society, who were they fearing that they did that? ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ خَشِيَ رَبَّهُ So it's connected with what came in the beginning. That infikak would never have happened. That separation would never have happened unless by a people who truly, truly feared their master. May Allah Azza wa Jal make us of those who fear their master. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.